Um, the Bible reading is from John 9, 1 to 12, and then 35 to 41, which is on page 1075 of the Church Bibles. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spat on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This, mean, this word means scent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbours and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, No, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes opened, they asked. He replied, The man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash, so I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. And then 35 to 41. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out, and when he found him, he asked, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir, the man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, You have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. The man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, What? Are we blind too? Jesus said, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. Thank you. Thanks, Callum, for leading at short notice as well. Um, thank you very much. I'm reading the room uh, tonight. My name's Chris Webb, and I'm reading the room. And the room says that you'd all like to watch The Matrix rather than listen to me. Uh, sorry. Um, if you could turn to the passage that we just read, it's actually quite a long passage. And there were lots of bits, obviously, that were missed out. Um, but over the past few weeks, we've been looking at the miraculous signs of Jesus in John's gospel. The author John has chosen the particular miracles that Jesus did to record seven of them, because each of them symbolizes something about who Jesus is and what he came to do. So this is the sixth of the seven signs that are recorded in the first 11 chapters of John. Now, this chapter is actually very long. Because the sign that Jesus performs leads to several interrogations. And we see all kinds of blindness in the chapter. This is how John uh, writes the gospel like a movie director. He has a scene and he contrasts it with another scene. And he is bringing out the theme of spiritual blindness and short-sightedness caused by religious indoctrination and cultural indoctrination and fear. But at the very end of our uh, passage, 
the man comes back to Jesus and he comes to faith. And so we've got a, a chapter full of interrogations and questions, but the four main groups of people involved are the disciples and Jesus, the neighbors and the man, the Pharisees and Jesus, and then Jesus and the man. So we'll look at each of those movements in turn. The disciples are asking, why is there suffering? Why is this man being born blind? The neighbors are asking, who can heal someone of blindness? The Pharisees are asking, how can this happen? How can this be? And then Jesus is asking the man, and through that, John is asking all of us, what's your verdict in this, on this? Do you believe in me? That's the structure of the passage. Why, who, how, what? So let's firstly have a look at verses 1 to 4 and the disciples' questions about pain and suffering. Verse 1. As he went along, he saw a blind, a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? Why? In the face of suffering, we have always as a human race had this question, why? A close family member of mine has recently rejected God. He cannot come to terms with how a good God could allow suffering, all the horrible suffering in the world that we see on the TV screens every day, and especially now in Ukraine. But this is a question that we've always had as human beings, and humans have come up with various answers. Some of the rabbis taught that you could sin in the womb, and because of that, you might receive a disability in your life. There were also views around that were similar to reincarnation and karma. Buddhism is a philosophical response to the why question in regard to suffering. And the disciples are trying out some of these theories on Jesus. But they, as several people do today, strongly believe that if you're having a hard life, you must have done something to deserve it. Who sinned? This man or his parents that he's born blind? We lived for five years in Thailand, a Buddhist country, uh, where karma was the ruling view, that you reap what you sow, that there's some invisible force of the universe that causes you to reap what you sow, that administers justice either in this life or the next. BBC football pundit and ex-England manager Glenn Hoddle was sacked from his job as England manager after a successful World Cup in 1999 for his belief in karma and specifically that disabled people must have done something in a previous life that caused them to be disabled in this life. Three huge problems with belief in karma. Number one, it produces tremendous pride in those who are having a good life. Number two, it's not true to facts because several tyrannical people prosper and several good people suffer. And thirdly, it's incredibly cruel to the suffering person. Well, Jesus says, no, you're blind to the reality that neither this man nor his parents have sinned. 
in another place, actually, in Luke chapter 13, the disciples have similar questions because a tower had fallen on some people. And Jesus says, do you think they were worse sinners than, than everybody else? No, he says. But then he says, unless, unless you repent, you also will perish. Jesus' perspective on suffering is nuanced. He's drawing on the biblical understanding of this suffering world we live in, that we turn from God, that we have a world that doesn't work right, and we, have, we all deserve towers falling on us in a way because of our rejection of God. The human race deserves that. We have a world that causes suffering, but individual suffering does not necessarily come from individual sin. Now, that's very different from any other view that you'll hear or see out there. And if you embrace the Christian view on suffering, which I have just briefly investigated, but if you want to read more, read C.S. Lewis or look at Tim Keller's book, Reason for God. But if you embrace the Christian view, it gets rid of self-pity and anger. We are in the world we deserve, but we don't beat ourselves up. We don't say, this is all my fault. We don't say, I hate thee, and we don't say, I hate me. We can't answer the why question in individual cases because we're not God. But what we do see in verses 3 and 4 is that God uses suffering to undertake his work. It's mysterious but God has work to do. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me because night is coming when no one can work. Faith says God is at work. I don't understand. I don't know the specifics, but I trust that God is accomplishing his work through this. I've seen it before. He always works, he always has done, and he always is working. So we've seen that the disciples have questions, and now we have an interrogation of the neighbors um, towards Jesus. But the question really in verses 5 to 12 is, who will deal with the suffering in our world? And we see two answers. The light of the world will deal with it, and the one sent by God, Jesus We'll deal with it. Verse 5. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. He's already said this in the previous chapter, in fact. He said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. But this world, folks, is in darkness. A good verse to know is 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4, that the God of this age, that's Satan has blinded the minds of those who do not believe the gospel and cannot see the face of Jesus Christ. Just like in the matrix, people were blind to the reality. The God of this age has blinded the minds of those who cannot see the unseen world, who cannot perceive it, who do not know God. The God of this age has infected this world with a disease of spiritual blindness. But Jesus comes from another kingdom, the kingdom of sight and the kingdom of truth. 
a kingdom where there is no suffering, a kingdom where there is no blindness or darkness. And so with Jesus' entry into this world, that kingdom intersected with ours and it broke in. And so the blind received sight and lepers were cleansed and the lame leapt for joy. Jesus is the light of this world who has come to alleviate the darkness of human suffering and human ignorance about God and the way of salvation and who has come to bring the light of truth. And we see here also that people who are nothing but an irritation and a distraction to the crowd were a cause of deep pain for him and deep empathy and sympathy and compassion. And while the world wanted to silence people like this, Jesus wanted to hear what they had to say and release their voices to the world. People wanted to make sure they didn't get in the way, but Jesus wanted to be sure that he stood with them. And in that sense also, he is the light of the world. But then verse six, after saying this, he spat on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. We're not really sure why he did that. Perhaps because it was the Sabbath, and Jesus is making a point because this was considered work to, to make mud on the Sabbath. And Jesus is showing that he has kingdom work to do, especially on the Sabbath, because he's Lord of the Sabbath, because he's come to give rest to this world. And he's the one who will bring true sight and true rest. But he also wants to show that he's sent by God. We see that right throughout John's gospel. You can trace the words sent and you can underline it several times. Jesus is the man sent by God to deal with the darkness of, the, of this world. And that's why he instructs the man to go to the pool of Siloam. The translation in English is sent. So the answer to the question, says John, who will deal with the suffering of this world is Jesus, the light of the world, the man sent by God to bring kingdom light into the darkness. Now we see a bit of an interrogation by his neighbors in verse 8. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging said, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? And some claimed he was, and others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. He's the only one who can see straight. The others are prejudiced in blindness and short-sightedness. How were your eyes opened? They ask in verse 10. Well, a man called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes, and he told me to go to Siloam and went uh, and washed, so I went and washed. There is a man called Jesus, sent by God to bring light into this world. Therefore, folks, we have cause to hope for this world, this dark world, because there is a man called Jesus. And 1 John 4, verse 14, the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. This world will not stay in darkness. The light of the truth of Jesus Christ will pierce it, and therefore we have hope. In the next movement, so thirdly, we see the Pharisees interrogating the man. That's in verses 13 to 34. The man's brought before the Pharisees, verse 13, the man who'd been born blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore, the Pharisees also asked him how he received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. This whole section here reveals 
the Pharisee's spiritual blindness. There is such a thing as sight that's not literal. I've seen it as a teacher sometimes. Uh, I've seen it when an 18-year-old applies for university and they, began to, they begin to realize, oh my gosh, how I do in my A-levels is going to set the course for my life. I didn't see the point of grades and all that before now. What a fool I was when I was 14 or 15 or 16. I didn't see lack of wisdom. Sight is a perception of reality. And spiritual blindness is not perceiving reality. In the matrix, people were blinded to the reality that computers were running the world and dominating humanity, and human beings were born into the bondage of slavery. The movie is full of gospel illustrations. But actually, there's so much dystopian literature today. The Hunger Games, Divergent, The Handmaid's Tale, we could go on and on, where the protagonists are all blinded to the reality of their existence. And folks, until you and I take the red pill and the Holy Spirit opens our eyes, there are things that we cannot see. And the two things that we cannot see are these, the reality of sin and the reality of grace. The Pharisees were blind to the reality of sin in their own lives. Skip down to verse 24. A second time, they summon the man who'd been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth. What irony John has in his account. Tell the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. And then if you look at, um, well, let, let me read to you the, the, the section and then I'll comment on it. He replied, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind and now I see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I've told you already and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Feisty. They hurled insults at him and said, you're this fellow's disciple, but we're disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fella, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to godly people who do his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And to this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out, threw him out of the synagogue. Wow. New Living Translation, verse 34, you were born a total sinner, steeped in sin at birth, says the NIV. Spiritual darkness equals spiritual pride. Before your eyes are open, you think everybody else is a sinner, but not you. And you feel threatened by Jesus and his disciples. You were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? See the fear and the feeling of threatened and the exhibition of pride. But when Jesus does open your eyes, you realize that you are a sinner. Remember the scales that fell from Saul's eyes when he became Paul, when he saw the Lord Jesus. And then he, 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 in his writing, he says, I am the chief of sinners. You realize the depth of the corruption of your motives. 
the Holy Spirit starts to shine his light into areas of your life and you see your desire to control others, to manipulate others, and you realize you're not in control of your life and you realize that you're, you're, you are driven by fears and lusts. And when the Holy Spirit opens our eyes, what he does is convict the world of sin and truth and righteousness as John is going to say later on. Spiritual blindness means that you think everybody else is a sinner, but not you. Spiritual awakening is an awakening to the the truth that you are born in bondage, that you are born in sin, that there's sin rampant in you. Spiritual blindness also means that you reject grace. The other thing that we see in the passage is that when we are spiritually blind, we are blind to the beauty of grace. When you're spiritually blind, you can't see the beauty of grace. You can't accept that the weak and the lame and the blind are in some ways at more an advantage spiritually. Let me take you to the end of the passage to show you this. Verses 39 to 41. Jesus said, for judgment I've come into this world so that the blind will see And those who see will become blind. Some of the Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, What? Are we blind too? Jesus said, If you were blind, you'd not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim to see, your guilt remains. Jesus here is talking about a kind of spiritual reversal, a principle of grace. To bring it from first century Palestine to 21st century Southampton, Let me tell you that there are some brilliant people out there in Southampton and the south of England. Some weirdos as well, yes, but there are some brilliant people out there, savvy in many ways. But the people who are most brilliant intellectually are at the greatest disadvantage when it comes to the gospel. That is because a sinner is saved by grace alone, not by any merit. That means the people who are saved are not good people, but those who are not good. And the lost people are not bad people, but proud people. And the more brilliant you are, the more disadvantaged you are, because the gospel says we're all beggars. And it's much more difficult for a person who who has succeeded to admit that. It's not nearly as difficult for a person who has failed, who's a real beggar, to admit that. So it's much harder for a brilliant person to admit that they are blind. And it's much more difficult for a successful person to admit, I am bankrupt. But that is what the gospel calls us to do. On Wednesday morning here, I was working in the office, and one of uh, the, uh, the people on reception came and said, Chris... There's a man at the door, and he wants to repent of his sins. That's the kind of thing that happens in Above Bar Street. Um, So um, I knew that this person wasn't going to be a successful lawyer. The man at the door came up, and he said, I keep lying, and I keep stealing, and I keep doing drugs, and I want to repent. And my girlfriend's in prison, and I love her so much but I want to repent of all my sins. And he he started weeping, and he was serious. But it's much harder for a successful person to ever do that, isn't it? 
The gospel is such that the people advantaged in the world are disadvantaged when it comes to the gospel. And the people who are least advantaged in the world are most advantaged when it comes to the gospel. The deepest blindness is a blindness to your own blindness. The deepest blindness says, I'm not blind. The only blindness without a remedy is the blindness that refuses to acknowledge that you're blind. But all of us here tonight have terrible blind spots. That is the truth. We see in John how truth is equated with light and life. Chapter 8, last week, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. And to illustrate all of this, we have the healing of the blind man. And then chapter 10 starts with these words. I tell you the truth. I'm the good shepherd, says Jesus. You need to follow me. But the truth is we all have blind spots. And there are things we think we're so right on, but actually we're so wrong. We might look back 20 years ago. We think, gosh, I was so emphatic about that thing. I thought I was so right, but I was so wrong. I wonder what your blind spots are. Well, Jesus' question, which concludes our passage, uh, really helps us to get a cure to blindness. In our last section, from verses 35 to 41, we see the ultimate question and the ultimate cure. The passage is so full of questions and interrogations, questions about suffering and interrogation of the man. But there are many questions that can distract us all from the ultimate question, which John wants to get through to us. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Verse 35. Jesus heard they'd thrown him out, and when he found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? The man, when we look back on the passage, has been on a spiritual journey. He called Jesus a man in verse 11. In verse 17, he called him a prophet. In verse 33, he calls him someone from God. But now in verse 38... The man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. And worship is the ultimate cure to our blindness. Worshipping the right thing is the only way to cure spiritual blindness. And the degree to which we can worship is the degree to which we can experience our sight clearing. So when we come here, we don't come just to sing some songs. We come to worship, and worship is vital to having our blind spots identified by the Holy Spirit and then removed. You and I need to see something through the seven signs that John has listed for us, uh, and the ultimate sign given to us is that he was plunged into spiritual darkness on the cross and then he rose on Easter morning. That's the seventh sign. The story of the gospel is the story of how he must be plunged into darkness so that we can receive sight. And when, when you see that, when you see him doing that for you, you're beginning to worship and your sight is beginning to clear. John leaves us with Jesus' question, do you believe in the Son of Man? It's as if John were asking us, where are you? on your journey to true sight and to the truth setting you free. If we admit 
that we can't see and don't understand a lot about God and the meaning of life, then Jesus will open our eyes. But if we insist that we can see, we'll become more and more unable to understand anything at all about the gospel. In conclusion, Jesus is the light of the world who's been sent to open the eyes of the blind. Where have you and I been blind this week, or these last few months, or this year? What have you and I failed to see? Have you and I failed to see where we're sinning, where we're falling short, where our idols are? Have you and I failed to see that we're operating out of fear, not faith, just like the Pharisees? Have you and I failed to see the beauty of God's grace? Do we quickly get annoyed by people and find ourselves condemning others rather than basking in grace and cultivating thankfulness and joy like the gospel says it will do when we have the fruit of the Spirit? What are our blind spots? Where have we taken a position recently where actually maybe we're wrong? Callum's going to come and help us in our response.